0: Hello and welcome to Reflections. I'm Ron Gaioso, your host. Today, our topic is fear. What is it and how to overcome it? So, in today's show, we will gain valuable insight on fear and how to go about managing it. First and foremost, thank you so very much for your being here with me and my guests today. I know your time is very important, and I'm the guy who will make sure it is invested wisely. So I've been waiting quite some time to interview Dr. Fisher. It's not often we get to talk with human sciences professionals, and my guest is an authority on theorism. So this is going to be a great talk. Well, uh, everybody's got some rules, and before I get started with the show proper, I need to cover some rules. So let's pull them up. Okay, so as a quick reminder, if you are here live with us, please be attentive to social media platforms' rules regarding the use of chat. If you're watching the show as a recording via Futures Television or via podcast, you too can be a part of the conversation. Instead of submitting your questions here live, just visit our YouTube channel and leave your comment. I will make sure to get to it right away and if you're here live with us please remember to be nice be polite and courteous. we all come from very different backgrounds and have different perspectives what is important is to ensure the discussion is civil and one more thing there's absolutely no hate speech allowed so by the way the chat boxes are indeed open please Take a moment to familiarize yourself with the chat. It's called a chat box or a chat window, depending on the service you're using. So please uh, do say hi and let me know where you're watching us from. If I appear not to be looking directly at you and the screen, it is because I'm scrolling through the comment boxes. If you can, please type hashtag ask. That is hashtag a s k. In front of your question so this way i can immediately spot your question and pose it to the guest there are several ways for you to submit a question of course you can use the chat if you are here online and live with us or you can email me a question please email it to editor at imcimagazine.com if you prefer to use the talk text function just text your question to 001 for the United States, 480 544 8372. Privacy rules do apply. I will not save your text or your number. Once it is read, it is deleted. Okay, I think we can move on to the first order of business, which is the agenda. So, first, I'm going to have a short introduction. Then, I'm going to welcome our guest, Dr. Michael Fisher. At the end of the show, I save some extra time for additional Q&A. So if you have that last minute burning question, there is still opportunity for you to ask that question. And of course, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about upcoming events. Well, enough of that. So let's go through uh, the introduction proper. We, Reflections, we are the live stream partner of IMCI magazine you can find us online at www.imcimagazine.com we are an online publication registered in the united states under number 2769-0008 we are a member of edos america media and our focus is on intelligence so competitive intelligence market intelligence economic intelligence And a whole lot of what we do in the magazine relates to foresight, future studies, and future literacy. Our vision or our goal is to bring diverse perspectives and voices to the debate. What you see here on the right-hand side of this image is the front cover of our latest issue. And the focus of that is on openness and inclusivity. I want to say a few words about the topic of the show today. So one of my favorite authors is Jean Delumont. In his book, Sin and Fear, the emergence of the Western guilt culture is an eye opener. So basically he explains how guilt and sin were combined with fear to allow for greater societal control. I came across Dr. Fisher in the discussion over his new book and upon our first conversation, I quickly realized I absolutely had to bring him to the show, for his views are truly inspiring. So the topic is not easy, but it is quite in tune with our reality. And I hope you will gain as much insight from this interview as I'm seeking to gain. At times, I will be beating around the bush a little bit. Then I will ask Dr. Fisher to help us with some definitions, And finally, I will ask him for some very specific advice. Okay, so I guess you get the idea. Uh, So let's uh, get started. And I want to say a few words uh, about uh, Dr. Fisher. So he is the director at the Fearlessness Research Institute and at the Center for Spiritual Inquiry at the Gaia House Interfaith Center. He is also the editor at the International Journal of Fear Studies and a very prolific writer. In fact, we are featuring his title, Resistance to Fearlessness, on the next edition of Books and Authors. So please stay tuned. You can find more about Dr. Fisher on his blog, Fearlessness Movement, And you can find it on www.fearlessnessmovement.ning.com. You will find the link to his blog and to his most recent book in the comment section of this video below. So enough of that. Let's uh, uh, welcome Dr. Fisher to the show. How are you doing today, Michael?
1: I am doing well, Ram. Thank you very much for inviting me.
0: Thank you so much for your being here and welcome all the folks who are listening to us from Canada. (laughs) All right, so uh, let's get started. Well, uh, before I really get going, I would like to cover the ground rules. And because your work covers so many different aspects of the human experience, questions can be, well, say, a bit esoteric. Uh, So if you do not like the question, just hit skip and we'll talk about something else. So uh, I divided this interview into three different blocks. So on my first block of questions, I'm really more interested in getting to know you as a person, understand your experiences and how those affected you. On the second block of questions, I will ask you to help with some definitions and you know where this is going. (laughs) Finally, on the third block of questions, I will ask you for some specific advice on fear management. I hope this sounds okay to you. Sounds good. Okay, so uh, uh, let's get going. I hope I didn't do too too bad of a job at the introduction, but please, in case I missed something really, really important, could you say a few words uh, about yourself?
1: Yeah, so I do come from a working class background. This is something I always like to say, and. And that, that sort of influences a lot of my thinking. There's, I also come from a family of immigrants, uh, particularly on my mom, mother's side. Uh, she came to Canada as a world, you know, in World War II, end of World War II in Belgium. And that was a country occupied by, you know, the Nazis for up to close to three years. And she was a teenager. Uh, she came to Canada, got married and had children. So I'm I'm product of, What you might call a traumatic event on a major scale for world history. So that's probably uh, one thing you want to know about me. And then I've gone through many career paths, I won't name them all. And uh, in the end, I've sort of tagged myself as an educator um, with a PhD doctorate in curriculum and instruction. But that, of course, is only one discipline I approached, you know, life and knowing and knowledge through transdisciplinary ways of knowing. We could talk about that further if you want, Ron.
0: Actually, I'm very glad you started where you started this introduction. And I hope this is not uh, um, of the books, but I want to start with the experiences. And I want to go back at exactly where you started your talk. So... Your mother lived in occupied Belgium. So living under the Nazis equates to living in fear. So did she talk to you about fear or the role of fear in her life and in her experience? So in other words, uh, was fear a topic you addressed when you were growing up?
1: No. And that that is an interesting piece of the pie. That's an interesting piece of the puzzle, why I might become an investigator of the nature and role of fear in human development and in cultural development, etc. I think um, what ends up happening and certainly with the the Holocaust experience in general, uh, and that has impacts and ramifications for many people who are around the particular target individuals, but countries, entire countries were absorbed in the attack really on diversity the attack on a particular types of peoples but it was an attack on freedom and democracy is obviously a fascist regime and driven by the use of fear and intimidation so one of the things that a lot of people and my mother being one example um, they don't actually talk about the fear and the terror mainly because arguably and trauma theories have shown there's good reasons for this. Their defense systems, psychically and internally, and that also includes certain cultural defense mechanisms, set in place to be able to tolerate that level of constant terror and intimidation. So what happens is there's really not a good vocabulary. This is very relevant, I think, to our talk when we get to the, the definition section and why I use such a rich language of let's just call it fear and fearlessness for now
0: yeah I, I doubt we can imagine um any more um fearsome experience uh than the holocaust I, I don't think anybody could have imagined anything to to um to that extension so i think that is probably the epitome or the apotheosis of fear so uh, i want to uh, remain in the life experiences field for a little while longer. So in your talks, you do talk about fishing with your father. Uh, so early on in life, you had uh, contact with nature, right? So how did that affect who you are or or who you became, your relationship with nature so early on?
1: Yeah, no, it's very interesting. A couple of different reasons. One is when you, you are in a working poor family, as I was, and very uneducated parents in terms of relatively, you know, grade eight education and kind of surviving as they did, you know, both working full time jobs, off shift work, etc. The one thing you can do for virtually free is to go into nature. Uh, And in those days, that was my dad's way of escape from his kind of, you know, life of the routine. And my mother loved it, too. And it just seemed to be what I, I would just really associate the word for them is freedom. For me, as a child, um, I got certainly that sense of freedom because when you're out there, you can run and go. And but you know, there was also the discipline of fishing and catching fish. So I call that you know the instinct, the primal instinct of learning to be a hunter, um, which is essential not only to males, but hunters and gatherers all still have to hunt. You have to know all the skills of how to read nature, how to work with her. And to therefore, you know, accomplish the harvest, so to speak. So I learned to be an incredibly good observer. Thank you, my father, now passed long. But um, that is also then nature itself. I will say in general, in general, other than extreme events in nature like volcanoes and hurricanes and tornadoes, which do happen. Um, There And infestations like locusts and so on, which have been part of the traumatic history of human cultures. But in general, on a regular kind of basis, nature is one thing you can kind of trust. And that's not easily said about cultures and peoples uh, when they interact. Uh, A lot more unknowns, untrustable factors. So I learned a deep base of what I'd call a faith, if you will, in a deep trust of the natural principles of order and that nature doesn't basically hurt you it's not out to hurt you and oppress you
0: now you're certainly not the biggest predator around there were no sharks but there's certainly bears and things like that so in your early life experience uh i mean you were fishing uh the dark water or the presence of a larger animal wolf or a bear or anything so you only talked about the, the positives, but was there any aspect of fear in that experience?
1: You know, there there's always, and you know, I don't think my father ever really did that kind of fear teaching, right? Of things to be afraid of when you go out in the woods. I, I think he actually avoided it. Um, and I actually appreciate that he didn't because he let me kind of go and learn, I mean, he just wasn't that super careful, hovering, you know, parent. Uh, that was not that generation when I grew up. And But my brother was very different. He was an older brother and he sort of loved to scare me and he loved to scare my sister. So uh, I actually would say he took on a certain kind of role of fear mongering in the family system. And, you know, that's not all positive for sure. Um, but without analyzing that further, I just say that most fear that I learned Um, was not because of things that happened in nature that were really scary, I would say, especially in my early years. Um, I would say it was my over-preparation, over-determined anticipation uh, that my brother taught. And this really enters the notion of fear is not an individual construct. For me, it is a social construct, and it's always being passed on.
0: Well, talking about uh, brothers and water and experience, so I'll share mine. So, um, and of course, I will probably date myself. But uh, at that time, uh, Jaws had just come out. as right. It was a very popular movie. So we were kids. So myself, my older brother, and uh, his then girlfriend, we were on the water, in the ocean, on the boat. Everything was nice and dandy, and then my brother turns to both of us and goes. The brain told me there are no white shark around me. But the dun, tan, 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 that did me in. The end. So we all panicked and we tried to grab the that leather. And in the panic, we dropped the leather, which is probably you no know, three or four hundred dollar leather. And of course my parents end up paying or footing debut, but it was this thing that you know the the brain tells you something, but the tells you something else, and then you every shade could be a shark. Of course it was my foot, every shade could be could be a shark. So uh you know, it's very interesting that you mentioned your brother and and uh the fear mongering. So I want to uh, change uh, subjects a little bit, and I want to ask you about uh, giving and receiving feedback. And we are always uh, cautioned to do that with the utmost care, right? So, for the experience, uh, could be traumatic, right? So, I want to go back to your uh, um, ninth grade and your aptitude test review that you quote, "ought to become a clerk." Uh, so how did you feel when you heard that, or uh, how has it affected you? Yeah, these are
1: the aptitude tests. You know, you we you would, everybody would have to take, um, kind of trying to plan your vocational. So just to help your audience understand the context of this, I and the test I took. I mean, you got to remember, I was like a, a rock, wanting to be a rock star. I was growing my hair long. The Beatles and the Rolling Stones were out, and and so I'm an artist at heart like that's that's my life I'm part of the 60s revolution kind of some of those ideas even though I wasn't really very smart about those ideas but I was part of that freedom movement love movement in North America but yeah to be to be told that you're going to be a, you're good for a clerk you know that would be you've got some skills of organizing um, etc it, it was it was really I, hard to say but I would guess you know it's an insult And the worst part of the insult, Ram, I think, is is not so much somebody giving you feedback, you know, in terms of content, Um, although it's influenced by content. It's the feedback you get when you feel you're not seen. And that counselor obviously was taking statistics from a standardized test and making an assessment about me, which is a, like about my life, my future, and that person is an authority over me, right? I mean, they're a counselor in my young eyes. Um, use of power, use of things like statistics and standardizations like that of analysis and testing without seeing a person and being a working class, poor working class person in what are basically middle class and upper middle class school systems. Um, Talk about feeling invisible and not seen, and that is the injury. Um, that is the injury that goes far beyond what that person was doing in that test, but it represents symbolically to me. It's a symptom of the the class blindness, um, and that's a huge problem still to this day. As you know, uh, we could include race and gender and all the things of parts of oppression, but I would say that is the most injurious and. Does it terrify a person? Yeah, I would say it does terrify at a very deep unconscious level. It terrified me of not being seen in this world and that I don't belong in this world because that you know, diagnosis to be a clerk did not fit at all with who I thought I was.
0: Yeah, certainly, and some people are uh, very careful and some teachers are inspiring, others are not. But I think it's important that you you know, thank you for sharing your experience Uh, Because, you know, especially when we're young, uh, we don't have all the defense mechanisms. So this could could truly be crushing on someone, right?
1: Fortunately, it wasn't crushing on me.
0: Yes. (laughs) For for, for various reasons. (laughs) Okay. So uh, changing the subject a little bit. So I want to get to know you as a writer. So you write about fear. Why? So why is it important to talk about fear?
1: Yeah. So first thing that I like to do is just challenge the language a bit in how we construct a conversation about fear. And the easy default, and it's very common as a default, and I don't mean a necessarily that that's bad. It just seems to be a default program in our languaging and our conceptual understanding in this world. I'm just going to talk about kind of the modern Western world that you and I are in is we focus on the fear and we don't focus on the fearlessness. And so I never, at this point, make a a principle to never talk about fear if I'm not talking about fearlessness at the same time. So let's just keep that in mind. And why I do that, there's a theory behind that. And I basically say is that when fear arises, there's always fearlessness present and arising as well. If you wanna pay attention to all the fear symptoms and imagination of the fear, That's what you'll get. You'll get a huge fear experience. If you want to pay attention to both the fear and the fearlessness experience, then you're going to get an understanding and be able to tap into what I call the spirit of fearlessness that arises with the fear experiencing. Why write about fear? Uh, Obviously, this biographical background, as I said, uh, there is a kind of growing up in a kind of basically a terrified environment. Um, starting with the, the circle of the family system and how they coped with the world and how I was hurt in that world because of some neglect, for sure. So I think I just have a natural, I'm not even going to say natural, I would say it's a cultural and a f- family-based um, orientation to the world that the world is not all that trustable except for nature. <laughs> you know, I always had that escape. So I, that's why I often make a distinction between the natural world and the cultural world. And even though I know, you know, philosophically, one could say, well, they're all one. So I would just say that the simple phrase I can come up with, Ram, to categorize why I went to fear eventually in 1989 as a focus for research and education in my thinking was I saw that humans as a as a species on the whole, and of course, there's some cultures that are Do not include in this, but let's just call it the modern industrial culture. Um, I saw that it was organizing itself in a sense, like an organization or a business organizes itself on certain principles, and that's called you know organizational culture. Well, I I saw sort of the Western modern world organized on a set of principles um, that were probably. In the same sense completely unsustainable i learned this that by the age probably of 14 15, i was already sensing it the way we treat the environment the way we treat each other the way you know the society is going and polluting i was very interested in pollution when it entered into my consciousness at 15 years old uh, because my fishing holes were being polluted by all kinds of industries and so i was real you know we couldn't eat the fish anymore so I had a very visceral experience that why are humans, here's the point, why are humans this only species that spoils its own nest?
0: So really one of the reasons I wanted you to come by is because you present such a balanced perspective. And I think we we need that. We need that balance. We can't just, uh, if you just talk about fear, you're going to panic mode and that's very unhealthy. Whereas you provide yeah. another perspective. So I want to uh, change uh, questions a little bit. And on this next block, I want to talk to you about some definitions uh, to the extent possible. So, um, well, of course, uh, I will ask you to describe that which is hard to describe. So, I'm going to talk about the Hydra of Lerna, right? right? That comes to mind, the one with a thousand snake heads, right? So perhaps not so many, but if memory serves me right, there are hundreds of defined fears and defined phobias, right? So uh, in the introduction to defining fear, a spectrum approach, you say, and I will quote, so defining fear is or could be one of the most important research agendas of human sciences in the next century uh, because of its key role in oppression, and liberation. So you chose to talk about fear as a weapon or as an instrument of oppression. Could you share one or two working definitions of fear?
1: Working definitions would be first one, really these are assumptions, uh, probably more than definitions. Um, They're meanings more than definitions. But It would be something like this. Um, Fear is an integral part of a complex phenomenon involving and enabling defense intelligence. Capital D, capital I. So defense intelligence systems, I'm very interested in, in all systems. Everything from organic systems to digital AI systems. How do systems evolve, right? Get designed, organized, and how do they defend themselves? I, there arguably is no system that does not have a defense intelligence system within it. And of course, we have, you know, four billion years of life systems on this planet that have built that kind of defense against entropy, against destruction, against chaos, um, more or less. And we've got to experience and understand that from studying organisms on our planet for 4 billion plus years or so. So that's a pretty interesting intelligence. So that's where I locate fear uh, to begin. So it's, you see, it's not a definition of fear, but it's a location of fear. And that's very important in my work. So now to definitions of fear obviously psychology, philosophy, and theology. Um, If you look at any of the literature on fear and you start reading it as I've read for so many decades, um, those fields have all had their own interest in how to locate fear and how to define fear. Now, end up in the modern world, in the Western world where I am, and it spreads around the whole world, the, the definitions of fear as, you know, a flight-fight response to threat of danger, and you get all that kind of, and then, of course, the neurologists and biologists come in with their little, you know, definitions of where that is in the brain system and so forth. So what's constantly being done in the definitionizing of fear is, is a locating in a reductionist way. So as a philosopher that I am in heart, Uh, I'm never happy with reductionistic definitions of anything, any phenomenon, and especially when they, you know, you have to do it sometimes for practical reasons, but when that definition becomes that which you rely upon, that's what you teach to next generations in your socialization and enculturation, that to me becomes dangerous, because it can be skewed. It's skewed by its own reduction. In other words, you're not capturing as much of the phenomenon as possible. So, The regular definition of fear, I would say, is a psychological definition. However, um, if you do a study of fear as I have across cultures, across wisdom, tradition, literatures, religious literatures, spiritual literatures, etc., there's this very interesting idea that fear and love are opposites. And I see it appear around the world. I still see it today in many literature.
0: Actually, that's where I'm going to go on my next question. Well, good.
1: That sure shifts the idea of what the definition of fear is when it's put at the same level as love, except they're opposites, you know?
0: Yeah, so uh, that's so because it's so difficult to define, what I'll be doing here is I'll be kind of uh, comparing and contrasting or putting things next to each other and asking you to kind of help me to make sense of it. So, uh, in fear, yes another one of your papers you use that very different approach so you describe it as a quote a human concern arguably fear is the most important universal topic in understanding human created destructivity on this planet and that which undermines love so let's let's be there for a moment so this is just the position between fear and love so what were you thinking
1: Well, I'm thinking a lot of things that why are these universal wisdom literatures, if you want to call them, uh, again, you find in Christianity, you find in Buddhism, etc. You find it in the Hindu traditions as well. um, This juxtaposition of fear and love. And really at that level, we're now talking about metaphysical reality, a metaphysical phenomenon. We're not talking just about a psychological phenomenon. I can only say... That has a big question mark. What does that mean, a metaphysics of love and fear? But a metaphysics of love and fear is different than a psychology of love and fear. So if I was to give the definition of how when love is present, and the metaphysical traditions say this too in their opposition, they say, when love is present, fear is absent. When fear is present, that starts to undermine love. In other words, they're incompatible phenomena and or their metaphysical principles of organization so that you can see one level i'm talking about just feelings and ways of behaving as a human being i'm I'm either love-based in my behaviors you know which are all the good traits right those are those are the virtues and then the vices right the opposite is they're fear-based so it's an argument you can make not not all virtues moral philosophies do that but there is lots of evidence that you could interpret it that way but at the metaphysical level you can't it's not so easy rigged or connected to behaviors right the observable behaviors and that's where i say you have to look at fear and you know love as deep motivational templates in other words that's why i'm interested in motivational design And templates and how we become aware of those deep motivators that are influencing us and i so i use the word to to try to play with a way of getting a handle on that is what is love patterning what is fear patterning and so fear patterning i sort of place as a kind of virus it goes into the love cell and begins to replace the dna just like a biological virus does so i'm using the analogy i think it's an interesting one to play with as an investigator how does the fear virus you know interpolate into a love-based system in other words a mother's love for the child right because see is unconditional it's naturally to be that way you know with cases unless there's some kind of pathology or damages but in general and then you go, well, then why does a mother at some point, or it could be a father, a caretaker of a child, start to turn that love into fear, more fear-based actions, behaviors, value systems, and imposes that, so I'll just call it ultra security and control upon a child's free will. And that becomes this really interesting interplay, right, where we see a certain kind of shift of the love energy in a family system moving to a more fear-based system of control. And that's not always healthy control. not saying some of it might be healthy to control. I'm not saying children should be absolutely free to do whatever they want. Um, So I think maybe that's
0: useful to you. Yeah, so let's change... uh a little bit of focus so uh, in your writings you explain some authors classify fear as a thing or a phenomenon whereas others prefer to call it a construction so which angle do you favor and why so is fear a thing or a construction
1: yeah no it's good i mean you could also say is it a thing a noun right is it something that you can kind of locate and go okay now we know we've got fear this is what fear is and that's why we like the, ter- the idea and all the languaging on fears. Oh, you have a fear of spiders. Oh, you have such and such a phobia. You know, 400, 500 phobias you can find in the encyclopedia. See, they're all locating fear in an object. So that's the thingizing that goes on in our language and our mental set of how we try to understand fear. And I'm going, whoa, you know, that, that has got nothing to do with understanding motivational templates. About fear and its operations, this fear patterning. No, it's not. You've put everything about fear into the to the concrete behavior, the object. And if you can't do that, then the the clinical psychologists say, "Oh, well, now we're talking about anxiety because the fear hasn't got an object to go to yet." Well, that's not really much of an improvement in my view. That's a very slight, you know, tweaking of the meaning of fear. So, I mean, I would just say that maybe if you could repeat your question I would probably be better
0: be able to answer it (laughs) no it's because at times you say it's a thing of course others will say fear is a spirit Uh, others will say it's a thing others will say it's a figment of our imagination others will say it's a construction it only exists because and I will get there so it's okay we'll talk about that I have other questions on this but it's just wanted to see because you, you made this point very clear in your in your writing so some people think thing guys it is there a word no. some people uh, say it's uh, um, a construct is right. So it's right and I would say it's both okay it's probably both so I want to go back to one of your writings at the time of SARS and 911 and I'm going back in the memory banks and you mentioned that quote fear is a commodity that sells so now, like them we perhaps live in a culture of fear it seems the media amplifies fear and fear mongers themselves often you know are not really challenged in public of course you wrote this years ago but is it not the same situation uh, we find ourselves in today
1: yeah absolutely growing it's a growing phenomenon of some people call it the weaponizing of fear some people call it commodification of fear Um, you know, generally, it's a type of fear mongering, right? The use of fear to manipulate people to vote, to buy your product, to follow you uh, and as a power leader of some kind, uh, etc. So um, commodification of fear is an interesting one in terms of a, a critique of the worst side of predatory capitalism, which basically capitalism in that predatory, unregulated not in tune with a moral responsibility capitalism for the most part what happens is that commodification drive within that capitalist mentality i'm speaking about really an ideology that it is our savior that kind of complex implicitly driving a lot of capitalism this is the way you know Um, it's like a type of spiritual religious belief system that that drive of commodifying is basically keeps moving inward and inward and inward. It used to focus most of its attention, the whole commodification, right, capitalizing something for potential sale and gain, on exterior things, and then maybe some services that that human bodies can offer to the world called work, or talents and skills and crafts, uh, you know whatever it might be entertainment. But when the commodification interest of those in control of commodifying systems and monetizing that commodity, they've now commodified our emotions, our emotional life, our feeling life, our philosophical life, our values life. And once you start seeing that, you know, as they try to get more and more interior. So now they're entering the territory of how can we get humans and you know, commodify their ecological emotional systems from the inside. That's the danger zone, and that commodification of fear because fear is part of our natural complex. I'm not saying it isn't, but then that becomes part of the constructive idea where fear is no longer just a feeling and emotion, um, fear becomes part of an economic system. Of utilization, and you they wouldn't even normally call it fear, they would just, you know, there's no language for understanding how the experience of fear can be commodified. We don't have a language to even name that fear out there. I have some languages I use, but that would be a complex discussion. You have to move into aesthetics, and I do an aesthetic analysis of fear and fearlessness.
0: So, why uh, are we so mesmerized by fear to the point that we don't denounce it? you know, we should be out there denouncing, hey, this is ridiculous, this is fear-mongering. But we don't. Is it, uh, uh, we like the comfortable position or we think it's just like the Roman circus and this is a spectacle? Or uh, what's your perception? So why aren't we more vocal about this?
1: Well, there's a lot of reasons, kind of we could go back to my mother uh, as just one example as I started the program with is, um, it's hard sometimes to get the language that fear is actually operating in a weaponized or commodified system of political oppression. In other words, a politics of fear, if you will, some authors say, and sometimes it's hard to get the language and distinctions and why, why is it hard? And a lot of the reasons is because we're not educated. So that's where my critique comes in of our education systems. We actually don't teach a really good critical vocabulary of fear and why do we teach a critical vocabulary or we're trying to on sexuality? And I say, well, we need to have the same kind of critical vocabulary on feriality. So the problem is, is if people don't have the critical vocabulary, just like to analyze media, right? To have a critical literacy of media, um, which is so impactful on us today. Um, people are, don't have the critique. Now that's one, uh, they don't feel confident. They don't even have the distinctions to notice and make those distinctions. And then the other one is, They're already in so much fear-based operation of survivalism. They do not want to threaten the system that's giving them the carrots, uh, you know, for being conformist, for doing your job and keeping your mouth shut. Don't walk the boat, on and on. That is a huge, huge factor as well on why people don't speak up. And of course, we know some people do speak up and some people are attacked and some people are killed and or whatever the case may be. Um, so there is suppression on the part of what I then label the fear matrix. In other words, a society that operates on a fear base, Delamu called it based on sin and guilt in the 13th, 18th century, where his study was. That to me has only increased now to a magnifold since the 18th century. And we're now in the 21st century and really Be argued like a century of terror on some level could be casted that way, not just a culture of fear or a century of fear, as Albert Camus said for the 20th century. Now we are, I think, in a century of terror, and that's an arguable case, but that doesn't mean again that that's all that's going on, and so that's the good news of fearlessness. But that's one couple reasons, maybe, Rom that uh, could start us to think about, yeah, there's good reasons that we don't challenge the very system that's feeding us the carrots, and that system is based on fear as a use and use of power from elite, powerful forces. Even though, yes, we play into it as citizens and people with maybe not so much power, we still play into it. And we play into it even through that silence by neglect, by not being well-educated, averse for all kinds of reasons, not to blame anybody particularly.
0: I want to uh, remain on the issue of education for uh, um, a little bit. So, in another one of your writings, you explain the educational perspective boils down to quote, fear is the disease and education is the cure. So, in, in this view, the modern mindset somehow enlightens the less educator uh, and therefore does away with the simpleton superstitious fears, right? So, but haven't we the quote educated actually came up with more modalities of fear than the so-called primitive or less educated people?
1: Yeah, that's an argument of Deshsuba. You may know the philosopher of fearism. His book came out in 2014 from Hong Kong. He's a Nepalese writer, philosopher, poet, and that was one of his main arguments. And a few other people have said that, but I, I think not a lot of people are saying that because we, we have a belief that more knowledge, more information, is less fear. And I'm not saying that isn't partially true um, in terms of handling superstitions in a certain way. But what I've found is that, and I think Desh Subha argues this, is that the more complex your brain, the more knowledge and inputs it has, the more aware it is of more kinds of fears, more kinds of ways fear itself operates in this matrix of systems And so the more educated you get, the more you understand, you know, the enemy in a sense, it's everywhere. So so, um, not just stuck in particular superstitions, you know, based on a particular, you know, ghost or a particular uh, magical or transcendent figure that is the source that needs to be calmed, right? Because it could be so terrorizing uh, in certain kinds of understandings. So yes, being educated, the problem, arguably for me as an educator, is at the same time we're getting more information and knowledge. What if we're getting more information and knowledge that is still fear-based? It's fear-based and invisible or hidden curriculum. This is what educators, philosophers do. Ah, uh, yeah, you're teaching us that, but what's the hidden curriculum underneath what you're teaching? That's where I look. And that's that motivational template I mentioned earlier. So my argument is the culture of fear has not uh, diminished one bit by us getting smarter and more educated.
0: Okay. See, that's why I wanted to go there. So um, I'm going to go to a different block of questions. And in this block, I will ask you for some very specific advice. But in order for this part of the conversation to be useful, I will ask you to remove the proverbial white gloves. So, and I will really ask you to throw some punches around. So, uh, we're going to go into the boxing ring and I really want to see you throw a couple of punches in there. So, uh, round one. So, in philosophy of fearism, you explain for most indigenous people's worldviews, fear is only made reality by our choices. You quoted a Cherokee adage that says, quote, one should not look fear in the face, but allow fear to look itself in the face. How do we do that?
1: Mm -hmm. With great difficulty, with great discipline, with great support and mentorship from those who have traveled the path ahead of you, And that requires humility, a humbleness and a real true humbleness towards those who you may admire, who you feel have walked the path of of fearlessness, as I call it, who have looked at fear and not just found ways to run around, cope around with it. And this is why there's been a turn and I've taken some of that turn in as a cultural phenomenon of late and last few decades towards understanding the indigenous people's worldview. And that's a very complex topic, but, you know, I've written a book on Four Arrows and he's uh, is, is an indigenous scholar and educator, and I've written an entire book on his work and understanding. So I look to those traditions, not for all the answers. And so you can see these are the pre, you know, pre-civilized, pre-colonizing traditions of culture. And so it's kind of a cultural anthropology of fear that I'm speaking about. If you want to be able to understand fear better, manage it better, look to the elders, look to those who have w- lived these old ways, because the argument Four Arrows makes, I think it's a somewhat problematic, but it, it it's interesting, is that, Those who were on the planet for 99% of human history, this is just historical time, and for the most part did not systematically destroy their environments while they were living in them. You know, obviously they have an effect and sometimes have to move on and regraze another area. So it's not like they're perfect human beings, but they are certainly not of the same ilk that the industrial colonizing worldview and the peoples that follow those that new worldview that really dissed nature and its natural principles of organizing so he's like me I'm advising there is a lot of wisdom to be gathered from what the indigenous people say and some are not all obviously um, are teaching about fear and I'm an interpreter of four arrows work and others um, in terms of the fear understanding and how to manage fear in different way and that's what, you know, they, they don't try to escape fear in their worldview. That's what Thoreau says. That's, that's where this look it in the eye, part of that comes is you have to understand that, you know, in a sense, you are the fear. Like, you have to look at your own self. And, you know, Plato, Plato Socrates, um, that's what he said, know thyself. And I say, know thy fearful self.
0: Yeah, so thank you so much for sharing you know the knowledge of the Cherokee Nation and I think uh, so one of the reasons why I do this work is I want people to look at different perspectives and in your work you give voice to others and I think that's that's one of the beauties of your work is to bringing other voices to the debate so uh, round two so uh, now I want you to tackle the troublesome two or double trouble when we first met, I remember telling you, uh, you know, one of my favorite authors is, you know, Jean Lumo and his history of fear in the Western mind. He explains how guilt and fear have been used as instruments of domination and coercion. So what is your practical advice, your practical advice for those who are victims of the troublesome two? In other words, what kind of coping mechanisms do you suggest countering the use of guilt and fear
1: nice sure well um you have to make a decision guilt and fear if we just use that simple language in the psychological sense because we kind of understand guilt and fear um fairly normal conversational language um We have to understand that guilt and fear are part of who we are and there is a healthy guilt and there's a abusive guilt making and that abusive guilt would be self-abusive and that comes because you were taught somebody taught you to be self-abusive and i'm going to argue this is the punch that the reason that we've been taught to fall into the use of guilt and sin against ourselves, not just guilt and sin that's coming from the church or the government or some authority, which it does, you can see that oppression to me is both interior, what I do with it, and what's coming from the outside. So, so how do I intervene on that cycle, that vicious cycle of, do I just repeat interiorly and say the same things that the exterior authorities are saying to me? I have to intervene with full responsibility. That's my advice, to take full responsibility for guilt, fear, sin, these fear-based patternings, as I call them, um, as self-generated first. Yes, they're also coming from the outside but they're self-generated. So am I repeating the system, right? The victim cycle. Am I going to make a decision to say, no, I'm not going to be the victim and I'm not going to pass it on. Uh, You hear that a lot in families of trauma, families of addictions. And I say, I'm the generation that's not going to pass it on. And so then I have to take a path. I have to take, make the discipline to basically not do that. So the punch is, those were just little jabs. Now the punch is, to realize that you, all of us, are part of a coping culture. And that's a big generalization, but I do not mind punching that one out as a generalization. In other words, simply, we've been taught to cope with our hurts, the things that happen to us that hurt us, not just physically, but psychologically, is mainly what I'm talking about. And sin and fear is just part of a... Complex of those kinds of interior hurtings to our interior being and integrity, we have to be responsible that we are all bought into more or less this coping culture. What's the alternative? A healing culture. And so when anybody asks me, how do we better cope with da 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 da, right? I always go, okay, now that's a language already to me tainted. It's already constructed within the oppressive system. They would rather have us cope. I'm just saying they, I'm just. but it's the whole system, this fear matrix, this oppressive world society that tends to dominate. That's my view, of course, and it's an arguable view. Some people say, well, we're not. We don't live in an oppressive society. Um, I say we do. And they. we have to realize that we haven't been taught healing processes anymore we've we forgot our natural healing process for the most part and that's why there's this whole wellness well-being healing discourse that's come recover your soul it's because we've lost we've lost to understand how we heal naturally and this is a part a great part of the indigenous traditions they have these healing rituals and so on so a lot of cultures have them not just indigenous per se but it has to be learned. and so I have to make a choice to realize, oh, I'm choosing to cope rather than to heal. And so we could then go in, well, how do you define a healing process? And you know that's that's many things. So basically I'm saying that the worst fear, cycling, vicious cycling that goes on that feeds all a precious cycle, oppressive cycling of all kinds and forms, is coming from a wounded, hurtful injury that is not healed inside, not only me, but them, and them, and them, and them, and them, and them, and, them and the whole culture. And so uh, why do we have therapists, right? And so on, because people are not always healing that interior. But we have to do it together as peers. We, we can't rely on professionals and pay professionals. That's ridiculous. That's a totally commodified process. Um, yes, you use them if you have to, but we have to learn a peer educational process. And that's my agenda. That's my mission on how to heal
0: yeah I really like the fact that you tell us pay attention to your syntax, you know, so don't cope, heal so we have to focus on the on the healing part so
1: of course it's a bit of both, right? I mean we yeah. all know that's the
0: reality <laughs> yeah. so well, you did well sparring with two now i I have to ask you to take on three so round three, I hope you can punch harder. So I want you to take on the unholy trinity, ignorance, fear, and hatred. So in essence, what we do not know, we fear, and what we fear, we hate. And because there's so much anger or resentment out there, we tend to ignore more, which leads to more fear and more hatred. And this sort of a vicious cycle. So uh, what strategies do you offer to break the vicious cycle? So again, the unholy trinity, ignorance, fear, and hatred. Well, the first punch is don't pay
1: attention to them too much. (laughs) And they will, like the seductive object, the evocative object, the addictive object, they will be your addiction if you continually focus on them. So, in other words, oh, there's more ignorance. See, there's more fear, oh, there's more hatreds, and oh boy, just watch the media. You'll you'll get your fill of for that addiction of being sucked into the seduction of that. That's what we should be paying attention to. Ignorance, fear, hatred. Oh, man, that's that's nasty addiction, and it's a hard one to break. It's just as hard as when an ambulance goes zooming by you on the street, you know, wherever you are, or you hear, and the first thing you do is you look. You give it attention. I can guarantee you do not for a second need to give attention to an ambulance going by screaming at sirens. That serves absolutely nothing. And you've just divested your attention, your intelligence into the most primitive signal, which is an alarm signal. All of those things, there's ignorance, there's fear, there's hatred. Those are all alarm signals. Those are all red lights going off and flashing in front of you because they get a lot of attention. And if it isn't that, it's a sexy person, you know, stripping their clothes off. It's the same seduction. And you go is that what i want to pay attention to and so the question then becomes well what's the alternative and it opens from all of those things you named ignorance fear and and i put fear in the middle of those ignorance and hatred and i would put arrogance with hatred Uh, i prefer arrogance rather than using the word hatred so ignorance and arrogance uh, are fear-based constructs in in a metaphysics of this vicious cycle uh, i call the fear project the fear projection And you have to understand that cycle. Yeah. So there's the education part. That's part of the intervention. And then this simple behavioral, as I said, is don't give them too much attention. Uh, That'll be a big error as far as I'm concerned. If you're interested in the path of healing and the path of fearlessness. And so, therefore, all the attention on that horrible triangle, as you say, that vicious cycle, the attention going there, going there, going there, going there, as the media does, and they teach us how to do that listen to the sirens, you know the signal. Um, I'm not saying ignore it. I'm just saying don't give it attention when you don't need to. And that's a discernment. And that you have to check up your impulse to speak, to look. Because that's that's built into us as a organism trying to survive danger signals potential. So what's the what I said at the very beginning of the program I don't like to talk about fear without talking about fearlessness. And that really is the way where you want to put your attention if that fear signaling is going on by watching and observing being part of that ignorance and just (laughs) whatever being frustrated by it (laughs) because it is and it's also hurtful we see the violence that goes with it it's traumatizing if you watch that stuff over and over like 9 11 was so where you put your attention would be the the big key and fearlessness is the alternative
0: now we you know of course it's not part of our native culture but in the east they use the term samsara or illusion or will of illusion so uh, in a sense as we give more power uh, to this illusion we are therefore diverted away from the path of healing is that how i should be looking at this yeah
1: yeah precisely
0: okay so you did well with three now i'm gonna ask you to tackle four okay round four so this is a very different kind of fear so i'm going to ask you to tackle the four horsemen of the apocalypse hunger war sickness and death so the pandemic millions lost their jobs lost their homes faced eviction had no income almost 5.9 million people died places like syria sudan afghanistan have been living at war for years, right? Those are very real fears. So not constructions, not figments of our imagination. So what advice uh, do you offer to those who face the four horsemen? So what kind of uh, um, healing mechanisms or at least hope can you offer?
1: Well, again, I'm going to go after language just to because that's important to to my work. And when I hear someone say, as you did, just on the spot, that's real, that's not constructions. So already there is a binary of that's real and that's not. And I would not agree fundamentally that that's probably the best way to understand reality. Um, They're both real and they are also constructions. Because just the response that we have to quote those real experiences is already built into a culture of fear construction. In other words, we will interpret, we'll pay attention to signals in a certain way, we interpret them in a certain way, so we're constructing the experience. So nothing is a raw experience that is not part of a construction of a whole set of mental, cognitive, philosophical, value-based, worldview-based interpretations. So that's one. Um, So they're real and they're constructed. So the good part about knowing that they're constructed and keeping that in mind and understanding what construction means, that's how you, as an agent of a real raw experience, can then reconstruct. And that's the whole idea of reframing. The meaning of it, doing the healing instead of just getting caught in the panic and coping and survival, primal, you know, reptilian brain rea- responses. See, that's the reconstruction. We have this huge forebrain that can go, oh, whoa, whoa, okay, I'm not going to necessarily follow everybody on this. Oh, oh, that seems to be, oh, yeah, it's scary not to follow when you're a social creature. Holy. Do you ever have to be empowered in your agential sense of, no, I'm going to think myself in this, and I'm going to sort out who are the good people around me that I trust and and want to. I'm not just going to follow the panic crowd. And so we don't have to be the crowd animal. Um, That's the beauty of being a human being. So if you want to call that the hopeful part, it is. Uh, We have an amazing capacity of defense intelligence system built into us that is not just ringing a, on following a bell of alarm signals and that there's so much evidence of that of great peoples of all kinds and ordinary peoples at times that do not just follow the alarm signal and the conformist social gathering. They, they, they make agential sh- decisions for self-intelligent response, rational if you want to call it, on hope. And it always comes up in every talk I pretty much do um, I do not offer hope. And uh, Foros says the same thing. And he says uh, the Indigenous traditional worldview does not offer hope. They don't play in the fear-hope game. Um, that's the whole idea of understanding fearlessness. Part of it is to unhook from the fear-hope game. That's the fear. So what's the hope? Um, it puts us into control by other people who sell hope we have a huge world goes back to a lot of the religions etc etc not the worst side of them there's a good side to them um that have sold us the fear hope you know pill and it's deadly um it's so unreliable um mainly because of these people that are sell that have no other idea. It's, they, they just want to profit from the power of using fear and hope to control and <laughs> watch the film the matrix and uh, uh, latest fourth matrix come out and you'll see how control works and you can see how it how we can respond agentially and build communities of a greater defense intelligence
0: defense intelligence see that's a different approach so as my last question you took on one you took on two you took on three you took on four now i'm gonna ask you to take on the legion the which one the legion Legion, Yeah, the legion. Oh. Hundreds. So hundreds of known forms of fears and phobias, right? How can we live a fearlessness life? Where do we start?
1: Yeah. Well, I would say the first is to say um, there is a construct worth playing with. And that is a fearless society. I am not the only one to use those words. And that was the fun part of my research is finding other people who have used that notion. And some people I really respect, you know, have used that even Bertrand Russell um, and others, you know, great philosopher even actually said, if we raised a generation of fearless women and children, the world would completely change. Uh, Wow. Even to think that thought, you see what I'm saying? Is that that, being able to think that thought not in a kind of utopic, you know, pink, you know, cushy uh, imagination of fantasy, but actually go, Oh, well, well yeah, wow, oh, if we were a healing culture, we would be a fearless society. Well, what does that mean? Do you, do you, you know, it doesn't mean that you're not going to experience fear, it doesn't mean that there won't be all these legion of fears, they'll all be there, probably. I mean, you know, any enlightenment great autobiography of an enlightened being, so-called. If you believe in that, I see in their biographies is, oh, you want to be enlightened? Well, then face every great fear that there is on the planet and ever has been. And when you face those and you walk to the other side of the room, you can still actually walk out into enlightenment. And that is you will not be controlled at some level spiritually, agentially, by that legion of fear. And that's all I'm saying. Is, this is not about the eradication of fear, although I'm, I'm happy to have a lot of eradication of traumatic-based, commodified fear. So I think that's kind of the idea in real simple terms. you got to look at your faith. And so I have faith in an idea of a fearless society, What's that based upon? It's based upon me doing my homework um, for the last 30 some years. Is everybody going to do that? No, everybody's not going to go study fear and fearlessness for 30 years. But you can learn from the people who have studied it. And I'm not the only one. I'm just one of these unique, crazy people who has has given 33 years to this phenomenon. But that's
0: that's really. um... The video bits that uh, you share, and that's the important part. So I guess we had enough boxing for the day, and I'm happy to announce you won by knockout. So, uh, folks, we are really just scratching the surface here. Uh, We can certainly continue this conversation, but I'm afraid that is all the time we have for today. Uh, Please uh, stay tuned uh, for Dr. Fisher's interview with Books and Authors. We'll be talking with him um, about his uh, latest book. And again, uh, check out Dr. Fisher's blog and the journal. They are treasure chests waiting for you to discover. Dr. Fisher, thank you so very much for your time today. This was a very enriching experience.
1: Thank you for a good fight.
0: Thank you. All righty. So, again, folks, uh, Dr. Michael Fisher, professor, author, philosopher, Uh, Always a pleasure uh, to hear him talk or to read his materials. His book, Resistances to Fearlessness, is available on Amazon.com. So let's talk a little bit about some upcoming events. Uh, We'll talk with Dr. Maria Hoffaker, a fabulous uh, blogger out of Berlin. Uh, We're going to bring Mark Cox, who talks about love in business. So it's not a love story. You have to watch this one. It's about bringing love into the business. And we're going to talk to David Rimmer. We're going to continue to focus on the topics you asked us to focus on. So technology, the metaverse, sustainability, and uh, Frost and Sullivan uh, has a a wonderful event coming up. And of course, the ICI also has uh, a new event. So, uh, by the way, uh, continue to feel free to submit your comments and questions on our YouTube page. I'll make sure to read it and present it to Dr. Fisher. uh, So, any other questions uh, you might have. If you're listening to us via podcast or watching the show as a recording via Futures Television, you too can be part of the conversation. Again, just visit our YouTube channel and leave a comment. Please don't forget to share and like this video. And please do subscribe to our channel. I am actually uh, counting on you. So it's uh, uh, thank you so much for you know Dr. Fisher for being here with me and the audience today. Thank you folks for your participation uh, in the show. Again, you can always reach out to me, the editor, or the magazine via Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube. And I hope to see you again soon. And stay tuned to Dr. Fisher's interview on books and authors. I will leave you with our institutional message. Thank you.